Hello, my friends. Um, as you all know, I'm broadcasting out of Mountain View, California, so close to one of my favorite places in the world where I still spend a lot of time. That is, of course, San Francisco. It's such a strange place. Really, it's unquestionably the global headquarters of artificial intelligence. Um, not just Algo, but pretty much every company in the last two decades in AI has started there or close to there. Oh, it's like filled with some of the smartest people in the world. It's swimming in money. Yet at the same time, um, you walk around, it's at least like some kind of post-apocalyptic dystopia. I, um, I don't know how to explain it. Honestly, I really don't. Welcome to Algo 2032, a story of the year AI runs for president. This series is an audio drama based on the book, 2032, The Year AI Runs for President by Keir Newton. Each episode will be released mirroring a chapter from the book. This is part 15, The Orpheum. I hovered inside the apartment block's lobby and waited for Shika and Trace. The sun was down now, and the street outside was dark, but for a few streetlights that still worked. The muscles in my right leg kept spasming, and I couldn't seem to stop sweating despite the cold. What had been just an idea and a fantasy before was suddenly feeling very real. I was terrified. I was about to try and destroy an AI that in many ways I'd spent much of my life helping to create, an AI that might do untold good for humanity. I kept telling myself I was doing the right thing. I hoped I was anyway. I scratched at the inside of my thigh, where Shika and Trace had helped me tape a small bag with the gamma ray pulse device. It was no bigger than a smartphone. I didn't love the idea of having the deadly device so close, despite their assurances that it wouldn't turn on without me opening it. Shika had talked me through the plan for getting into the pyramid and avoiding security. It was straightforward enough. But before I could attempt it, we still had to get out of the square. Shika and Trace had trawled online through pages and pages of city plans and building schematics. They had found two potential ways out that would avoid the police roadblocks. Option one was an abandoned Munilite rail tunnel. Option two was a derelict wastewater tunnel. The wastewater tunnel was riskier, especially if the rain started to bucket down again. So we decided on the Muni tunnel. Shika and I would head for it and attempt to make it out. Trace would scope out the wastewater tunnel in case it didn't work out. The best way into the Muni tunnel was in the center of the block bordered by Mission, Minna, 6th and 7th streets. To get there, Shika and I would need to walk six or seven blocks through some of the busiest parts of the square, including Crossing Market Street. I wasn't real confident we could get that far without drawing attention to ourselves or getting spotted by one of those drones overhead, but there was simply no better way. Footsteps suddenly clapped on the rickety old staircase behind me. Four points. The latest poll numbers were just released. Algo is four points ahead of the president now. Seems your old pal Jamin is making progress. Algo's personal outreach strategy must have been working, I thought to myself. Then, I guess we better get moving, I said. Shika reached into her jacket for one of the foldable display devices and tossed it at me. Trace prepared this for you, so we can stay in contact. 
My own dark web device, huh? I said, and bounced the thing from hand to hand. Only thing that works is messaging, and there are only two contacts. You can see the T for Trace, or the S for me. No time for me to casually browse Ombre then, I asked. Or get myself up to speed on the calls for revolution on those Descon forums? You're funny. Shika spoke without even the hint of a smile. Trace handed me another tiny bag and a roll of tape. I took that as the cue to attach this thing to my other leg. I guess you couldn't be too careful in the square. Shika looked worried as she peered out the front door. I haven't seen a drone in a while, but you can bet they're out there. Getting all the way to Ministry without being seen is going to be difficult. Difficult didn't begin to capture it, I thought. How the hell were we supposed to outwit a series of drones with state-of-the-art facial recognition? Shika then brightened a little as she reached for a couple of plastic bags that she had left next to the staircase. A couple of blankets spilled out onto the floor. I took the liberty of preparing a little disguise for us. I put my hand over my nose and mouth. Had she just grabbed these blankets from the sidewalk or something? They smelled like a damn crime scene. Trace grabbed a blanket and started to wrap it around my shoulders. Look, princess, we need to blend in. We need to look like the kind of people that the world has forgotten all about. The kind of people that those flying the drones couldn't give two shits about. Trust me, this will make all of us invisible in plain sight. Shika then wrapped a blanket around her shoulders and over her head. She drew in a deep breath, dry-retched, and then forced a smile. I guess we'll get used to it. If you say so, I said. I swallowed hard. The stench was overwhelming, but I eventually managed to get the blanket over my face, obscuring everything but my eyes. At least the smell was something else my mind could focus on. Just make sure you always keep your face covered. Got it? I nodded. I knew that even if the drones ignored us, we needed to make sure we didn't have too many facial data points available to some random scan. And if there's any trouble, message via the shadow net. If you can't message, we meet back here. Trace and I both nodded. Good luck out there, kid, I said to Trace. Same to you, old man. I'll make sure I find a path for you. The kid was brash and annoying, but I'd come around to thinking he was okay. I hoped he'd be all right. Shika now exited the building and turned south onto Hyde. She shuffled down the sidewalk, her feet dragging like a zombie. I did my best to do the same, keeping my head down in case a drone flew by. For the first time since being here, I was relieved the city didn't bother to police the square with any actual cops. My heart skipped a beat when the first drone whizzed by overhead, but it passed us by without incident. It wasn't long before we made it all the way to Market Street with barely a second look from anyone. The disguises seemed to be working. We were just two more forgotten, unlucky residents of the square. We soon passed the old Orpheum Theater. I remembered seeing the musical Hamilton there over a decade ago. This area was even getting bad then, but now it was a wasteland. The building looked completely derelict. The letters on the old sign at the entrance had been torn off. The lights on the awnings over the street had been smashed to dust, and the windows were all shattered. There was a large group of people loitering at the entrance, 
hovering around a few oil barrels that were being used for makeshift fire pits. What's the deal with that? I ask. The Orpheum's been taken over by the square now. It's a kind of boarding house. Pay a small fee, and they'll let you sleep on the seats inside. I wondered exactly who they were and how many people might call the place home. We walked on carefully, eventually making it to Minna Street. Shika suddenly stopped. Damn. In front of us stretched a vast makeshift tent city. Not just the sidewalks, but all over the street too. The entire block had been taken over. It was already late in the evening, but there were throngs of people milling about outside their rough and ready improvised homes. The encampment looked like it continued all the way to the next street and beyond. I shuffled over toward Shika. The entrance to the warehouse is about halfway down. We're not going to be able to do this quietly, are we? I said. Doesn't look like it. There was no reason to wait around wondering. I pushed past two men huddled around a fire at the entrance. It felt good to lead the way for once. Shika hurried after me. The tents ran three to four deep on either side of us, utilizing every square inch of available space. Old, abandoned buildings fronted both sides of the street and had all been turned into housing, too. There had to be almost a thousand people living on this block alone. There didn't seem to be any electrical power to speak of. I saw only the flickering of candlelight, camp lights, or the glow of the occasional smartphone. Huddled faces peered back at me. I was struck by the number of families and the children. These were not the faces of criminals, drug addicts, or the mentally ill that I had always associated with the Tenderloin. If anything, they reminded me of Tyrone. These people were the cleaners, security guards, gig economy workers, the old folks and others automated out of work without any other skill to fall back on and now living on the fringes of destitution. I suddenly saw a vision of each face before me, with a number for their individual overall personal value hovering over it. God, these people were human beings, not just numbers to feed into an algorithm. I pulled the blanket a little tighter around my head, wanting to disappear into it. I felt a tug at my back. Shika pointed at an old warehouse. I think this is it. The building's facade was crumbling into the street. I could just make out the outline of the old numbers above the door. 637. Like every other building, this one had been taken over by squatters. I could see the flickering of lights behind a plastic sheet covering the broken windows on the ground floor. The entrance to the access tunnel should be behind the building. We could try knocking, I asked. I don't think so. There are still some pretty sketch folks around here. It's probably just a bunch of families in there, but it could be. Worse. Well, I think I spotted a gap between two of the buildings maybe 200 feet back, I said. It could be another way. Okay, you go back. I'll keep going and check if there's another way through up ahead. I made my way back. I was right. There was a tiny gap between the buildings. I passed through a tiny dark alleyway, and then I was out into a little rectangular area of paved concrete, enclosed by the abandoned buildings around it. In the past, it had probably been a parking lot. I could make out what looked like the back of the building at 637 Minna up ahead. There was a deep depression in the ground and a couple of large metal plates. That had to be what we were here for. 
under those plates would be a way into the Muni Tunnel. I couldn't believe it. Maybe this would work out after all. There was a flash of movement from the other side of the lot, and Sheikah emerged out of the darkness. Just as I readied to run to her, two bright lights emerged from a door halfway between us. I stopped. They were flashlights, held by two SFPD officers. What the fuck? Wasn't the square supposed to be a cop-free zone? Were these two waiting here for us? I froze. One of the officers shone a flashlight in my direction. I was sure I must have been spotted, but nothing happened. Shika edged backwards. A second light shone right at her. Shika ran. This was bad. Very bad. The first officer gave chase. The other started back toward the old warehouse, presumably intending to cut Shika off once she got out to Street. I crept backwards. A corner of my blanket got caught under my shoe, and I almost fell. The second officer instantly stopped and pointed a flashlight in my direction. The officer then started to run in my direction. I leaped up and ready to dash back down the alleyway to Street when my eyes were drawn to flashes of light in the other direction. White, red, white, red. The lights had to be the cars driving by on Mission Street. That meant there was another alleyway out of here. I figured that if I ran back to Minna, I might catch up with Sheikah, but we'd have a pair of cops on our tails. No. It was time to divide and conquer. I ran down the alleyway toward Mission. I had a good hundred feet or so on the cop. I was halfway to freedom when I spotted a chain-link fence in front of me. It was at least ten feet high. It was too late to turn back. All the heavy ranching work I'd been doing in Hawaii finally came in handy. I scaled the fence and vaulted over the top. My blanket, though, got caught on the top and fell off my shoulders. It floated down gently on the other side. I could hear the heavy footfalls of leather boots not far behind. I'd have to leave it. I kept running toward Mission Street. I heard my pursuer curse as he ran into the fence. Suspect exiting on the mission between seven. The voice trailed off, and there was a crackle of a radio in response. Shit. They were looking for me. I sprinted across Mission and headed for Market Street. I couldn't risk trying to get all the way back to Sheikah's apartment. Not with my face exposed. The drones and now maybe more cops out here. The Orpheum Theater loomed in front of me. Maybe I could lay low in there until I heard from Trace or Sheikah. I slipped past the folks at the entrance to the theater. It was almost pitch black inside, and it took a few moments for my eyes to adjust. I staggered through the lobby, and before I knew it, I'd blundered into the bottom floor of the auditorium. Every row was crammed with people on the floor, or on what was left of the seats. A few heads popped up, and faces glared at me for disturbing their slumber. Damn, I couldn't stay here. Where to go, though? I didn't want to head back outside. I needed to find somewhere I could try to contact Sheikah or Trace. I spotted a door at the back of the theater. The door said maintenance. I slunk along the side of the theater toward it. I pushed the door open. It was dark inside, except for a little ambient light from a skylight above. I could just make out the shapes of what looked like old janitorial equipment. 
Who the fuck are you? I jumped backwards. I asked you a question, damn it. She was just a dark shape, almost keeled over in a ball against the wall at the far end of the room. She raised her head slightly. I'm sorry, I said. I didn't know anyone else was in here. The woman got up onto her knees, but kept cradling her stomach as if in pain. Slowly, she inched over a little closer to me. My eyes were adjusting to the near-total darkness. I could make out her long, drawn face. The arms she held around her belly were shaking. She gritted her teeth. Tell me, buddy, do you usually make a habit of blindly walking into people's rooms? Look, it's my mistake, I said. I held up my hand in a clumsy attempt at placating her. If I had known this room was yours, I said. Well, I wouldn't have. The woman ran her hand through her short, cropped hair. She scratched at her sides, and I could see the needle marks that ran up her arms. Well, I guess I can forgive you just this once. Are you a guest of the family or something? You should know that those accommodations are strictly back in the theater. You'll get yourself in big trouble by just wandering around. The family, I thought to myself. That must be the name of whatever group had taken this place over. It sounded ominously pleasant. Hey, you got anything I can have? Got any ice? You sure look like an ice guy. Fuck, I'll even take a blunt if you have one. I'm sorry, I said, and shook my head. I was only looking for a place to stop and rest. You greedy fuck. Come on, man. Who the fuck in here doesn't have something? I shrugged. The woman made her way over to me on her knees and pressed right up against me, forcing my legs either side of her. She pulled at my belt buckle. I can do things, you know. You just gotta give me something. Come on, you look like a user. Don't try to tell me you ain't. I wish I could help, I said. Really, I do. Then I grabbed her arm and pushed it away. The woman's smile disappeared. If you don't give me something, I'll scream and them guys from the family are gonna rush in here and cut you up. Wait, I said. Really, if I had anything, I'd give it to you. She held my gaze with vacant, expressionless eyes. After a moment, she nodded and threw herself down onto the floor. Okay then, if you say so. She turned away from me and stared at the wall. I pushed the door open to leave. She then threw her head back and unleashed a piercing, guttural scream. I bolted out of the door and started sprinting through the theater for the street. I saw the promise of streetlights up ahead. I'd almost made it when I felt a pull on the back of my shirt. Two men had grabbed me. They dragged me back into the lobby and hurled me onto the floor. Four more men stepped out of the shadows and joined them. They were all wearing long, dark cloaks over black shirts and cargo-style pants. They wore heavy military-style boots and utility belts. It was clearly meant to be a menacing uniform of some kind. The six of them started forming a circle around me. One of the men stepped forward. A heavy chain hanging from his belt dragged along the floor next to him. The room was dark and two of the other men had flashlights turned on me. But I could make out that this man had long hair down to his shoulders in a thin, wiry frame. Any other time or place, and I had to think this guy would likely have been out on the street himself. But here, he was, clearly the ruler of this wretched, stinking kingdom. And he reveled in it.
I don't know you. What are you doing in my theater? A mistake, I said as I started to stand up. A second man pushed me back down to the ground. In a flash, the first man grabbed his chain and whipped it across my stomach. I clutched at my stomach in pain as he crouched down next to me. You think you can come sleep in here and not pay the rent? No, 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 no. You don't just walk into a man's house and do whatever you want. He clicked his tongue and flashed a sharp grin. I'm sorry, I said. I didn't know. Okay, boss, Lord knows everybody makes mistakes. The man scratched at the patchy beard growing around his chin and grabbed my hand, helping me up off the floor. He grinned and theatrically dusted off my shoulders. But you got to make amends. So what are you going to pay for your mistake? Says he ain't got nothing, fire. I could now see the woman from the maintenance room standing behind the group of men. Fire looked at me with mock astonishment. Is that so? Nothing at all, huh? I shook my head. Fire began to walk around me. The rest of the men in the circle stepped back. Lift up your left hand. I did as he asked. What's this then, nothing man? I looked at the blank smart palm on the back of my hand and then back at him. This, I asked, confused. What good would this be to them? It couldn't be removed. Fire clapped his hands. Very, very good, nothing man. I think it ought to cover your cost here. I can't give you this, I said. Fire grabbed my arm. I tried to pull away, but two men stepped out of the circle and grabbed my shoulders. It's fused onto my hand, I said, panicked. You can see that, right? One of the men behind me laughed. Fire held up a switchblade and dangled it in front of my face. Please, I said. It's useless without me. It's encrypted. You won't even be able to turn it on. Fire grinned and waved the knife at me. Then I'll sell it for parts. Now, unless you want this stuck somewhere else, you had better stop talking. The knife dug into the back of my hand. I struggled, trying to break free. I could feel blood running down my arm. I writhed and squirmed, but they held me in place while fire did his work. My whole body seemed to feel each short, sharp cut. I'd never felt pain like it. It was as if the device was being peeled right off of my hand. It had taken an hour of surgery to fuse the smart palm to my hand, but it was cut from me in no more than a minute. Fire waved the smart palm above his head triumphantly as it dripped red onto the floor. His crew whooped in delight. It's been a real pleasure doing business with you. Nothing, man. Fire slapped me again before signaling his buddies to release me. I dropped instantly to the floor. Fire and his men shrunk away into the shadows of the theater. Now, there was complete silence, but for my own whimpering. I told you they'd do it, didn't I? I could only grunt in response. The woman moved toward me, then dropped to her knees with her face just above mine. She held a towel. She dangled it over me and then tossed it at the wall. So you can clean yourself up when you're ready. Shit, dude, what the hell you come into the square for with that thing anyway? I grunted again. Well, let this be a lesson. I've seen this kind of thing a thousand times. 
You'll be fine in a few days. Oh dear, pissed yourself in the excitement, did you? I'd been in so much pain, I hadn't even noticed the wetness around my belly. It was now mixed with the stink of blood on me. Typical square vermin. Don't you ever fucking come back to the Orpheum again? It's funny how life teaches, ain't it? Her face changed to one of almost deranged rage, and she gleefully dug her nails into my injured hand. I cried out in pain. She grinned and walked away, ascending a staircase to the second level of the theater. Pain began to overtake me. My hand was on fire. My guts rumbled, and I threw up on the floor. How the mighty had fallen. Isaac Raff the billionaire. Writhing in pain on the floor of an abandoned theater in the middle of the square, covered in his own filth, bleeding out. My mind started to race. What had happened to Sheikah and to Trace? Would I be lying here, helpless, while Algo and Jamin won the presidency? My vision started to get foggy. Unconsciousness was trying to take me. I saw an image of the gray face of Algo, then Jamin's self-satisfied, superior smile. <laughs> your talent might have brought you this far, Yin, but, well, your weak character won't let you go any further. Am I right? Jamin clapped his hand together. I felt rage welling within me. I screamed at the top of my lungs and pushed myself up off the ground. I crawled over to the wall where the woman had tossed the towel. At least my smart palm had distracted them from discovering the gamma ray pulse device. I grabbed at the wall and managed to haul myself up to stand. Fuck Jamin. I wasn't going to give up this time. I had a job to do. You've been listening to part 15 of Algo 2032, a story of the year AI runs for president. This series is written by Keir Newton and produced by Rotten Little Nerds. All the voices are voiced by AI itself. They are either fully digital or cloned voices via play.ht. Given the nature of this story, it felt fitting to have AI voice the characters. Original music is AI-generated via soundraw.io. Please join us next time for Part 16, our story, On the Run. Found the city by the bay. The 21st century version of A Tale of Two Cities.